I saw an abomination yesterday. I went up to this beautiful stone church in Cragsmoor. Old church, a couple hundred years old it has to be. Beautiful, ornate stone. Um, The windows were, what's that called? Stained glass windows. And you walked in and you just felt like this is what a church should look like. It brings an atmosphere of awe. Um, You went there, John, right, recently? All right, tell me if you saw this. Did you you take a close look at the windows there? Window, you walk in and you just kept going. The The first one you would look at, way in the back left. Christian church, right? But as I, as I walked in and I started to read pamphlets that, that were there and look at the windows, I, I realized that this church, though it looks holy and ornate, has lost the fundamental truth that it should embody. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't, I don't want to hear about God in general. I want to hear about God in Christ. It's so easy to talk about God. So easy to talk about God. I, I know I've said this before, but God is a very acceptable topic. But the point of the gospel is that God has revealed himself, and he has done so decisively through Jesus Christ. So when we, talk, when we do evangelism, we're not just talking about the great other We're talking about God revealing himself and extending grace and mercy through Christ who died for your sins, which if he did not die for, you would die for, and rose again. That's the message. So anyhow, I I looked at this window, and in this window, it was a stained glass window that said, the interfaith window. And they had symbols of the Muslim faith and symbols of Buddhism and little explanations, a paper explaining the, how these faiths all intertwine to make some kind of, you know, you know, they say something trite. That is an abomination. And I, I, my heart, I wasn't sad, I was angry. Because the house of the Lord is defiled in those kinds of situations. It's being used for a purpose that it was not intended. It's lost its very life. So I I know perhaps something of what Christ felt when he cleansed the temple. They they had made it a, a house of, a den of robbers. A house of trade and economy and marketing and this place has made it a house of general spiritual ideas rather than about Jesus Christ the way the truth and the life and they're all they're all these these asinine generalities all over the place peace you know love and yes obviously who doesn't want that but the whole the reason we're here today is because God is not just 
it's not that God is just about those things. It's that he has extended those things through his son. You follow me? So that is an example of defilement <clears throat> in my eyes. The house of the Lord has been defiled in that situation. Today, we're going to talk about defilement and righteous indignation. Turn with me to Genesis 34. Jacob had made, had made it to the promised land. He had not gotten to where he needed to yet, yet, but he has made it safely away from away from Laban, who was after him, away from Esau, who pursued him with 400 men. And now he is at the promised land, kind of getting comfortable in a way he shouldn't. So read with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. Genesis 34 and seeing how Jacob's lack of righteous indignation and poor leadership has actually led to the defilement of a covenant daughter and worse. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her, and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to meet Jacob and speak with him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field as soon as they heard it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her. To him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as I will give. And I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. Well, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father and Hamar deceitfully. Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you. That you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you. 
and we will take our daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar, and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he had delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored in all his father's house. So Hamar, the son of Shechem, or Hamar and his son Shechem, came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For, um, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. And let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, we will not, we will not, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and we will dwell with us we, they will dwell with us and all who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of the city <clears throat> on the third day when they were sore two of the sons of Jacob Simeon and Levi Dinah's brothers took their swords and it came against that city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and punished and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Are you glad you came to church today? <laughs> In the passage we just read, we see how literally one sin leads to another. Jacob's daughter goes out. She is raped. The sons plot to revenge her and to avenge her by going into the city and killing not only the man who did the raping, but his father and all the men in the city, and then falling and plundering upon everyone in the city, including the wives and the children. They carried out vengeance. Now, in light of all that happens in this passage, so this is a, this is a revenge story, but in light of everything that's happening in this passage, it is very peculiar to see the passivity of Jacob, who seems to take a spiritual step backwards. 
previously, in the past couple of chapters, we saw that he demonstrated dependence, at least on God, by fleeing from Laban's house. And he, de he demonstrated trust and faith in the Lord by reconciling with his brother Esau, even though he was coming after him with 400 men. And he made it safely into the promised land. But here he takes a step backwards spiritually. And I think that's, I think that's often a problem with us. It's when we have spiritual victories in life, we almost rest on our, our spiritual and religious laurels and kind of take a step back, put the um, foot on the gas a little bit, so start to backslide. We, get, we become satisfied with our spiritual victories. That is why old men are susceptible to passivity. Young men are overzealous, but old men are passive and round and they, don't have, they lose unction. In this passage, we see Jacob... So I want to focus on Jacob in this passage. Although he's hardly mentioned, what he does or does not do is very telling. And he shows the marks of a poor spiritual leader. I want to give you four marks of a poor spiritual leader we see from Jacob in this passage. Four marks. Number one, looking at the first four verses. Uh, a poor spiritual leader often displays an unhealthy proximity to the world rather than a meticulous obedience to God. We read that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, who was Jacob's daughter, went out to see the women of the land. Now, pause right there for a second. That's verse 1. Jacob if you remember in chapter 28, has made a vow that he would return to Bethel. Not, not, not delay in Shechem, which is 20 miles north of Bethel, but go to Bethel as God had promised, as God had told him, as, as he made a vow to God. Now it's only 20 miles difference. He's in the promised land, you might say. But he made the vow to return to that place. And in chapter 35, which we'll, t which we'll cover next week, God reminds him of this promise and says, Go back to Bethel. Rather than go to Bethel, though, um, Jacob settle settles near the city of Shechem. And he does business with the people there. And this reminds me of Lot, does it not? Who kind of settled near... Uh, a Canaanite city sitting at the gates of Sodom and here Jacob is sitting at the gates of Shechem just as a side note God requires of spiritual leaders to do exactly what is told of them um, Moses was not allowed to enter the land do you know why? do you remember why Moses was not allowed to enter the land? Because God said, speak to the rock. And what he did was hit the rock. That disqualified him from entering the land. 
Numbers 27, 14, God says that Moses in doing this failed to uphold me as holy before their eyes. The way you uphold the Lord as holy is to tremble at his word. Especially if you make a vow to God. Nadab and Abihu, they were offering to the Lord, but in an enigmatic way that we're not entirely sure what was going on there. They authored fire, but it was unauthorized or strange fire to the Lord. And the Lord destroyed them. And we read in Leviticus 10.3, after God destroys Nadab and Abihu from, for offering unauthorized fire, he says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. Do you want to be close to God? Tremble at his word. The men I respect the most, near or far, are men who almost, who meticulously follow God because they are almost fearful of him. They love him, but they are fearful of deviating from God's word. Now, so Jacob, I believe, deviated from God's word, even though ever so slightly, by settling in Shechem instead of Bethel. And it's Jacob's very proximity to Shechem that opens up the door for curiosity for his daughter. And we read that daughter went out to see the women of the land, Adina. Dinah is Jacob's last daughter, um, last child. She's at best 15, or at worst 15, at best 17 at this passage. Now, you could say her going out to see the women in the land, I mean, that's, not, that's no sin. Maybe that's imprudent. Maybe it's not wise, but it's no sin. And I would, I would tend to agree with that on this condition. Number one, it was her proximity to the land that opened up the door for her to go in and see the women. Second of all, children are curious. Even teenagers are curious. So if those who do not wish to sin should not sit at the door of temptation, then those who do not wish their children to sin should not place them in front of the door of temptation. Right? Parents, as the spiritual leaders of your children, be vigilant to keep a healthy distance from the world for your children's sake. I Beware of... Children are impressionable, and they're curious, and they're not... They don't have the, the spiritual muscle yet to be discerning enough to not go out and visit the women of the land. If you, so if we plant ourselves too close to Shechem, too close to the world, we're in a place of satisfying their curiosity instead of protecting their souls. Now, I don't... I'm just going to say this. If you, if you send your kids to public school, that's fine. 
but we send our, our Wesson Lees to a private Christian school. We Chapelfield, great school. They do a fantastic job. Their education, I think, is going to be bar none in the next 10 years. They have this classical education model. They're reading like Augustine and Plato in, in eighth grade. It, it's amazing. But they have a Christian education there. And um, I was talking to another brother from another church. This was a year or two ago. And I was telling him, you know, I'm sitting there because I want to protect them while they grow up. Wesley was five at the time. And he was, he is a Christian, but he decides to send his, his children to public school. Fine. But he kind of pushed back on me and says, well, we're supposed to be salt and light, right? We're supposed to be salt. So I send my kids there to be salt and light in, in, in the public school. <laughs> I was saying to him, my son is five. He's not going to be salt and light. <laughs> He's impressionable and curious. He's not... He, don't... By a rule, don't send toddlers into the public school system to be salt and light. <laughs> Alright? That's, that's backwards. Our job, whether they go to public school or not, our job as parents is to guard their hearts and to teach them the way of the Lord and holiness and love of God and the joy of the Holy Spirit in the home so that when they do leave then they can be sold in life discipleship is a process and especially for a young person it's a process so Jacob, I believe, demonstrated, first of all, poor leadership in that he had an unhealthy proximity to the world, period. Number two. Second mark of poor leadership that Jacob displays is he is passive when defilement enters his territory. Poor spiritual leaders are passive when defilement enters their territory. Um... There is a notable, noticeable difference between how Jacob responds in the passage, if you noticed, to the rape of his daughter, and how the sons respond to the rape of his daughter. Look at me in verse 5. It says, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. That's all we get. You think holding his peace sounds honorable to, to a degree. But there is a perplexing lack of outrage from Jacob. And at the very end of the chapter, that lack of outrage seems to be underladen with a fear and a cowardice. But here he shows indifference. And perhaps it just betrays a desire to not rock the boats with the Shechemites, whom he had just dwelt among and bought land in and began a commercial connection with. I do not see, there's no restitution required by Jacob. There's no payment demanded. There's no hanging of Shechem, of Shechem suggested. There's no stoning 
There's no imprisonment or punishment. There's no rebuke or curse. There's no anger or rage. There's just a quivering silence under the guise of holding your peace. One commentator says, The reader expects Jacob to be outraged. Instead, we are told that he did nothing until his sons returned from tending the cattle. His silence leaves readers wondering about his reaction. Now, if Jacob's response was ambiguous and passive, the response of Jacob's sons are unequivocal rage. And actually, the text itself joins them in that rage. Listen to verses 6 through 7. <clears throat> and Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field. As soon as they heard it, the men were indignant and very angry because they had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. And then the text itself comments, Moses himself comments, for such a thing must not be done. So there's outrage here. Our daughter has been raped. There is outrage. They are filled with indignation. Let me just say, this is the way to act when a family member is taken advantage of in that way. Is it not? This is the way to act. What will keep a person from acting that way is fear or not wanting to rock the boat. But it's, rest assured, for those who, for those who have a, a tender disposition, rest assured that it is good to be righteously indignant. It's a good thing. The Apostle Paul says, get this, let love be genuine, he says. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. You want genuine love? Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. There is genuine love. Be intolerant of evil. I heard someone say that the church's tolerance is hurting her witness just as much, if not more, than her intolerance. In a day where the church is being ridiculed and pushed back on, having righteous indignation is even more tricky today because it comes off as mean, bigoted, etc. And as long as you're not being a hateful bigot, it's okay to be righteously indignant. When abortion was passed, the Roe vs. Wade decision was passed, which I rejoice in. There were people, Christians, talking in hushed tones about how we need to see the other side. And, you know, this, you know it's, we're sinners too, obviously. But it's good to rejoice that a, an instrument of death was overturned in the Supreme Court. Right? When did that stop being good? One of my favorite questions in the New City Catechism that we 
go over with our, our children sometimes is the question that asks, um, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? The answer is no. God is righteously angry with our sin. And he will punish us both in this life and the life to come. The next question is, there, is there any way to escape this punishment? Yes, Jesus Christ, who can bring us back to a Savior. But that doesn't mean that God is passive with child sex trafficking and the murder of Christians in the Middle East by Muslims and other unspeakable things that we, we don't even understand. We, we are middle class, hardworking people. But there, there is an underbelly, and I just know this because I've heard some stories, but there is an underbelly to our world that is unspeakable evil. There, I don't even want to tell you where to find out this information, but the, the unspeakable evil that I've heard of is beyond... You talk about seared consciences. It is as dark and black and evil, and it has the stench of wounds and death and bitterness, and it is cold and callous and uh, loves everything that tears a person apart. There's an evil in the world that we just aren't exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. God hates that. And Jesus cleansed the temple when he was righteously indignant because the house of the Lord was turned in to something else, just like the stone church in Cragsmore. So Jacob, I believe, displays a, a mark, another mark of a poor leader by not at least being obviously righteously indignant that his daughter was raped while his sons have to take up the mantle of indignation. Third, mark of poor leadership. The passivity of poor leaders causes those who are actually angry to take up the, mat the mantle with misguided zeal. Let me read that again because I believe this is a reality today. When a leader is passive, when evil enters his territory, what it does is that it incites an indignation not only because of the situation, the evil that entered the camp, but because of the very passivity of the leaders themselves on the issue. When a spiritual leader is indifferent to and fails to act decisively about pagan defilements, those who are immature may profane the covenant by their misguided zeal. That's a quote from a, an Old Testament scholar. When a leader is indifferent 
or fails to act decisively about pagan defilements, those who are immature may profane the covenant by misguided zeal. As I said, the danger for old men is to grow passive. The danger for young men is for their zeal to boil over unto unrighteous indignation. That gives us to verse 8. In verse 8, Hamar and Shechem plead for the hand of Dinah. Hamar speaks to them and says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me to make a wife. Make marriages with us and our daughters, and you take our daughters, and you shall dwell with us in the land, and it shall be open to you. Dwell with us and get property in it. So Shechem tries to tempt them with economic benefits, or Hamar. Shechem just speaks from the heart, because at this point, after having physical relations or intercourse with this woman, Dinah, he has actually grown very fond of her. and says in verse 12, Ask me for as great a bride price, and I will give it to you. And I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Well, what I notice here is there are no apologies that I can see. Sometimes it's what's missing in the passage that's what's most telling. There's no apologies. They're just saying, how can we make this marriage happen? Jacob doesn't say anything in the passage. But the sons of Jacob... And I think it's because Jacob doesn't say anything. Doesn't take up the mantle. Therefore, that leaves the door open for the sons of Jacob, who are in their late teens at this point, early 20s, filled with righteous indignation, to take up the mantle. And they, as we read, they use circumcision as a pretense. They say, yeah, you guys get circumcised. Now, let me... Let me tell you something about circumcision. If you got circumcised when you were an adult, it would hurt. And it would hurt for a few days. So what the plan is, is what we read. The sons of Jacob are scheming to debilitate the men. So that having been circumcised, they can come into the city and kill the uncircumcised men who are healing and sore. It would be, it would be like Warren guys say, this would be like if we invited all the unbelievers to church one day and then did a baptism and then we drowned them in the water as they were getting in the water. We closed up the baptism and drowned them. So that's the idea. Um... But it was a lack of action and indignation by Jacob that led his sons to take these matters into their own hands. And again, I want to quote the Old Testament scholar because I think he's right on the money when he says, when spiritual leaders are indifferent and fail to act decisively about pagan defilements, this may open the door for the mature to profane the covenant by misguided zeal. Jacob's poor... Another thing, Jacob's poor leadership is on display in that he seems to be going along with this plan. 
which he believes is a plan to assimilate into the family of the Canaanites. Look at verse 22. When Hamar presents this circumcision deal to his city, probably a small city, he says, only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. Become one people. Now, should the covenant people of God assimilate with the Canaanites? No. But that is what Satan has been trying to do since the very beginning. Genesis 6, Satan assimilates because the sons of God come down and there's a strange assimilation going on there with the daughters of men. In, Rome, in Genesis 12, the promised seed is jeopardized because Pharaoh almost has intercourse with Sarah. Same thing happens with Isaac. And here, again, it's almost like the seed of the serpent is trying to rape the children of God through assimilation. Now, Jacob, I think, is allured then. Not by angels, not from the stupidity of a husband like Abraham was, but he is allured by perhaps the social and economic advantages of assimilating with the Shechemites. Then in the next section here, starting in verse 22, or, oh, let me just say this about Hamar. Hamar presents this circumcision idea. First of all, you can see his evil intentions. They're going to become one people. In verse 23, he says, almost whispers to them, and says, Will not their livestock, their property, and their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. So, this is a takeover, too. You win them over by change from within, he's thinking. Calvin is very good here, because he sees in Hamar a politician. <laughs> and uh, godless leaders, who are often politicians, um, tend to hide their motivations. So Calvin says, Hamar and Shechem enumerate advantages to the people in the city. Meanwhile, they are cunningly, they cunningly, they cunningly conceal the private and real cause of their request. There is no mention of Dinah and how Shechem has taken advantage of her, wants to marry her. All that is posed is economic advantages. Whence it follows that all these pretexts are fallacious, but it, is but it is a very common disease that men of rank who have great authority, while making all things subservient to their own private ends, feign themselves to be considerate for the common good and pretend a desire for the public advantage. So, you see how Hamar is not really telling the whole story here. This is where the righteous indignation of the sons boils over into unrighteous revenge. 
we see when they're sore, verse 25. The third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, two specifically, Simeon and Levi, they're the ones that do this. Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and killed Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Now, at verse 27, it's not clear whether this is the other sons who come in and plunder the city or this is an addendum which expands the violence done in the city by Simeon and Levi. Either way, the text says, the son of Jacob came upon the slain, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and their field, all their wealth. They even took the little ones and their wives. All that was in the house they captured and plundered. Now, this, this is a hard passage to preach. Not because it's violent. I'll, I'll talk about this violence all day. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a hard passage to preach because you almost feel like their motives were honorable, Simeon and Levi. I mean, our sister was raped by a pagan. You know, something's got to give. Jacob's not doing anything. So there's, a, there's part of me that feels for them. Like I, I, I feel their rage and their indignation. So I want to say that their motives were honorable. Their motivation was honorable and righteous. However, I want to also say that their actions were unrighteous. First of all, I see this because the punishment does not fit the crime at all. They killed not only Shechem, but they killed his father and every male in the city. And they took their wives and their children, and who knows what they did with them. So the punishment does not fit the crime. Second of all, well, you might say, well, doesn't God command the slaughter of Canaanites? Yes, he does. And exactly. There is no mention of God in this passage. There is no command in this passage. There is only vengeance of a brothers. Of brothers, Though understandable, and though it is righteous indignation, it boils over unto unrighteous vengeance. Yes, God does tell Israel to slaughter the Canaanites later, but here there is no mention of God in this passage. There is no command this was simply a case of revenge. Another reason I would give you, and I think this is the biggest reason, that Simon, Simeon, and Levi were wrong to do this is found in the final oracle of chapter 49, 6, and 7. If you want to turn there, 49, 6, and 7. This is the final word on... Simeon and Levi specifically, who did this. Jacob's oracle, which talks about 
Judah and the scepter not departing from Judah, which foreshadows Christ, also says a word about Simeon and Levi in verse six and, uh, 5 through 7. Here's what, here's what is said. Reflecting the heart of God. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Interestingly enough, I'd only read this briefly, but Simeon's numbers, if you look out in the rest of the Pentateuch, go from 59,000, I think, to 22,000 people. So they decrease. Very interesting. And so all that to say, and in the end, the final word on them is that their anger is cruel and fierce and that God will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel, almost taking away their lot because of what their fathers had done. There is a difference, brothers and sisters, please understand this. There is a difference between righteous indignation and brute vengeance. Righteous anger, anger does not necessitate unrighteous behavior. Right? You can be angry and sin not. So I was reading an interesting article because we don't live in the times where you went after people with swords. Maybe some of you guys do up there. But us common folk, we <laughs> don't do that kind of thing. We, you know, we're, we're sitting ducks. Our greatest fights are over Twitter. And I read, a, um, I read an interesting article in Nine Marks. I love the title here. This kind of touches on the point of the passage. The title is, this is for pastors. I was going over the qualifications for elders, and the title is, Are You Principled or Just a Contentious Jerk? <laughs> he writes, The Apostle Paul says an overseer must not be quarrelsome. Yet in my experience, quarrelsome people often hide behind the excuse, I'm just principled, or I'm standing up for the truth when, when no one else will. Now, it's not completely unreasonable to say that. Many people seem to confuse having an opinion with being quarrelsome and hostile and aggressive, but that's not right. So how do you know if you're principled or just a contentious jerk? The Webster's Dictionary defines quarrelsomeness as apt or disposed to find fault, contentious. In other words, if you're prone to debate to sow discord or to cause strife, then you are contentious and a quarrelsome person. If you are hungry for a good online fight or more committed to winning an argument than winning over an opponent, 
then you are a quarrelsome person. To be sure, you might be principled. But being principled doesn't mean you're exempt from the responsibility of being of not being quarrelsome. So you get the you get his point? Yes, it's good to be principled. But if that principiableness boils over into contention, anger, or violence, then you've what you've done is you've taken a good thing and you've made it a bad thing. If I were the sons, I'd have to look, I'd have to think more about this. So I'm stepping off the pulpit, not preaching the word of God right now. If I were the sons, I would, I feel so exposed <laughs> without a, if I were the sons, I would have, um, I would have said to Hamar, no, your son deserves punishment. Bring him here and we'll deal with him. <laughs> that would have been something to do. Now, poor leaders, this is fourth and finally, poor leaders have a greater fear of losing what they have than an indignation for evil. Look at the response of Jacob in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the people of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed. A lot of I in that passage. I in my household. But Scripture gives the sons the last word. and says, But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So, this seems to be a condemnation of Jacob by giving the sons the last word. And when spiritual leaders are indifferent to evil, it opens the door for all kinds of chaos. And it allows others to take up the mantle. And others who take up the mantle may be immature and may have misguided zeal and may carry it out the wrong way. Um, three things by way of summary. Number one, God's will is and is not done in this passage. It is not done in the act itself of the vengeance of Simeon and Levi, and I think we saw that in chapter 49, verses 6 through 7. However, the seed was preserved, and assimilation was not achieved, even though Jacob attend, intended it, and so did Hamar. But it's almost like God repurposed the evil of Simeon and Levi. It's almost like what they intended for evil, God meant for good. Number two, notice that, and this is just a comment, notice that the world has been trying to assimilate its, itself into the people of God from the beginning. Like I said, that's what the snake does in the garden, tries to insert itself in God's good place. And it's always takes, it always takes a sexual undertone. 
locked um, Lot's daughters become a, the Moabites who are a great a great um, enemy thank you Nidhi has to feed me words here <laughs> a great enemy of um, of Israel uh, think about Genesis 6 think about Pharaoh almost copulating with Sarah think about the same thing happening to Isaac it almost always takes a sexual undertone it's almost like God's people are always trying always being uh, perversion is being thrown at them so that's why I think that we need we need to be very loving but firm with the LGBTQ movement number three do not oh Jacob notice what Jacob is called throughout the passage Jacob not Israel because he's very Jacob-like in this passage. He does not strive with men or God in this passage. He doesn't act like Israel. He acts like Jacob in this passage. Finally, I just want to ask, why was this story told? Why couldn't... Why, if you are writing... If you are chronicling the history of your people and you wanted to show how great and awesome and austere and the history from whence we came and the greatness and the uh, you know the religious fidelity of this group you would not include this story in fact looking at the text it's almost like you could miss out chapter 34 and go from 33 to 35 perfectly he arrives in the land God brings him to Bethel why include this story? Well, obviously, and we've seen this again, because Scripture is not trying to make another Hercules in Abraham or his descendants. Scripture speaks a singular truth throughout Genesis, which we have seen time and time again. And that is this. The engine that moves along redemptive history is not man, but God's promises and God acting on his providence, either directly or providentially, bringing about his promises, protecting his covenant people. Until finally you get to Christ. And Christ is the covenant head who does not lead people astray. Whether it's Abraham, whether it's David, whether it's um, Noah, Adam, all of these men had a fall of some sort, leading their progeny astray. Finally, and they, some of them passive at sin. But there is a man, Jesus Christ, who is righteously indignant with sin, cleansing temples because the house of God is defiled. And yet his indignation does not boil over to revenge but a cross. And I said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Father, forgive them for you. They know not what they do. Says to Peter, do you not know that I could call down 12 legions of angels right now and slaughter them? And now he calls all men to repent because he will come in judgment one day. 
And then he will come in wrath. But right now, he extends mercy and grace to us. There is a man I can follow. There is a covenant head that is true and good and dangerous and not passive and indignant. There is a man who we can follow. Jesus Christ, who is the true covenant head, will not lead his people astray, but will guide them into truth and will defend us against our enemies. Those are the marks of a poor spiritual leader, only highlighting the good spiritual leadership of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer.